This is They Create Worlds, episode 179, Space Invaders and Nishikado. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We return to you once again in order to talk about a very grave subject. You see, Earth is under attack. There is an invasion going on, and it's possibly from outer space. There's some space invaders coming in. We know that you are brave, and as wonderful gamers, we will have a wonderful setup of missile batteries for you to take out the enemies as they slowly work their way down towards Earth. Just make sure none of them touch the ground. I, for one, Jeffrey, welcome our new ant overlords and would like to remind them that as a marginally known podcasting personality, I can be very useful for them to recruit humans to work in their sugar mines. Bonus points if you get that reference. (laughs) That's right. We return to one of the most consequential games in the entire history of video games, which is, of course, Space Invaders. I have said in the past that you can divide the entire computer game industry into uh, before Doom and after Doom just because the impact of that game was so enormous. It's no exaggeration to say that you can really divide, at this point, maybe not all the video game history since uh, it's a 45-year-old game, but at least the early period of video game history into before Space Invaders and after Space Invaders, because the impact it had on both the coin-operated games industry and on the home video game industry was just absolutely enormous. The video game industry before Space Invaders, or video game industries, as we always like to point out, there really wasn't one unified industry at the time, before Space Invaders are completely unrecognizable. Video games are almost completely unrecognizable before Space Invaders, and what it unleashed just changed everything. I think I'm going to play devil's advocate here go, but guys, you did Taito, which was a big thing about Space (laughs) Invaders. You did all this stuff about Atari and Space Invaders. You did this thing over here about Space Invaders, and I remember that one time you were doing all these corrections about Japan and 100 yen coins being a lie, and not a lie is a lie, not a lie, we don't know anymore. Didn't you just cover this, you know, somewhere in the backlog and you're just rehashing this in order to make my life miserable? How did you know, Jeffrey? How did you cotton on to my brilliant master plan before we even got the darn thing recorded? That's unfortunate. We're going to have to... No. But uh, (laughs) in all seriousness, yes, of course, we have talked about Space Invaders many times, Top 100 Influential Games, Origins of Japanese Game Centers, Taito History, Atari VCS History, the Corrections episode you mentioned, because it is such a monumental game that when you're talking about video game history in a specific period of time, late 1970s, early 1980s, it is quite simply an unavoidable product. However, we've told the story in bits and pieces, starts and stops. We talked about Taito and its creation there. We talked about its impact on the early Japanese industry. We talked about its impact on the VCS. But we haven't actually just like strung that whole narrative together and talked about space invaders from end to end and what an important impact it's had. We haven't delved into 
every last nook and cranny. We haven't talked, for instance, about its impact on copyright. We haven't gone into huge detail on the background of the creator of the game. So there's aspects of the story we haven't touched on. And of course, as you alluded to with the 100 yen coin things, there are aspects of the story that we continue to learn more about. And there are certain aspects of past episodes that had to be corrected. This is our opportunity to really just dive deep into Space Invaders itself, instead of it being 15 or even 20 minutes of a 90-minute episode, having it be the entire focus of a 90-minute episode, and create a coherent look at its impact across all of these areas, across different platforms, across different regions of the world, and also have something that is uniformly correct, at least for the next five minutes, until we learn about something else. Okay, we know this came out of Taito, and we know that someone there was inspired by H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and saw some TV movie adaptation, something like that, and decided, you know, I don't want that to happen on Earth, so we need to train the youth in order to (laughs) defend themselves from alien invasion. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly why he did it. Yes, Space Invaders is a game that came out of Taito, but it really was the singular vision. And I say singular because he created essentially all of the hardware. He created the program. He did the art. He did everything except the sound and the cabinet design. So we can truly say it was the singular creation of one individual by the name of Tomohiro Nishikado. Now, we've, of course, talked about Nishikado before because we've talked about Taito. We've talked about Space Invaders. But by doing this whole Space Invaders episode, it gives us an opportunity to go into the background of the individual himself. We have a lot more information on Nishikado than we do on a lot of the early Japanese programmers because he actually sat down with Florent Gorge, most prominently known as a Nintendo historian, but in this case serving as a more general video game history historian, and gave a comprehensive oral history that was then released in French. He's also done some oral histories in Japan as well, but those don't translate as easily as French does. Having a French source to translate in English is much better than having a Japanese source, just because the machine language, uh, machine learning programs do a better job with that. So we actually have a wealth of information on Nishikado the person that we can have an opportunity to go into here. Tomohiro Nishikado was born in 1944 in the city of Kishiwada, which is a port city near Osaka, so in the southern part of the main island of Japan. Obviously, he was born during the war. He has no memory of it. I mean, he was two when the war ended. In fact, he might not have even turned two yet when the war ended. I think he was born in November. So uh, he was very young. He was fortunate that he didn't grow up in much hardship, really. Obviously, the post-war period in Japan, the country was in ruins. Uh, Nobody had anything. There was no economy. (laughs) People were bartering. But his family managed to do okay. He was one of four children and of an unusual family background. His mother was actually highly educated. Very unusual for Japan in that time period, and had been a school teacher before she started having children. And so by the time Nishikata was born, she was a housewife, but a highly educated housewife. His father was not educated, but he was a very skilled craftsman. He was good with his hands. You know, he had quit school early in order to go into a trade profession to help support the family, and he made carpenter's tools, was his specific area of specialization. 
So I think because he had a very useful trade is part of the reason why they didn't experience the same hardship as some families did right after the war. Now, it still wasn't an easy life at first. I mean, they were literally having to barter for things. His mother would actually make clothes and barter with the local farmers for food. I mean, right after the war, there just there was no economy, but they were not starving. They were not having to resort to stealing animals off the street to eat at night, as some people in Japan were. In that sense, they were somewhat fortunate. The other thing that's interesting is they were actually a Christian household. His mother was a Christian. Very unusual in Japan. Nishikado, once he was out of the home, he no longer practiced. He's not religious, but they attended Mass when he was a kid. That has nothing to do with his video game history. It didn't influence, to my knowledge, anything he did in video games. It's just interesting because, obviously, Christianity is not exactly a common religion in Japan. With this background, with this uh, household that he was growing up in, there was actually a great emphasis on education in the Nishikado household. From the mother's side, that's obvious. His mother had been a teacher, so of course uh, she was very interested in education. But his father was also very insistent that the children be educated because he wanted a better life for them. He had had to quit school to go take up a trade, and he wanted his children to be educated. So there was a very strong educational emphasis from a very young age. From a very young age in elementary school, Nishikado very much took to the sciences. He enjoyed science experiments. He was very good at math. He was never so interested in language, Japanese, English, literature, any of that kind of stuff, but really drawn to the math and sciences. In terms of his entertainment life as a child, at that time, Kishiwada was not a very built-up area. Of course, all over Japan, everything's built up today. I mean, Kishiwada basically is part of Osaka at this point, but at that time in the 1950s, it was still somewhat rural, and so they would roam the countryside and swim and hike and do all of those kinds of things. A lot of emphasis. Again, this doesn't really tie into Space Invaders specifically, but you know, going tangential again, there's a lot of Japanese video game history that comes out of this nostalgic feeling for a slightly more rural Japan that hardly exists anymore. Shigeru Miyamoto and The Legend of Zelda was very much inspired by that. Satoshi Tajiri and Pokemon was very much inspired by that. This idea of just being able to roam free, and that seems to be something that inspired a whole generation or so of Japanese game creators, though, like I said, I mean, that doesn't really tie into aliens in space. But still, he was a fun-loving kid. He was also into manga, Astro Boy. He even took a correspondence course in manga creation that was sponsored by Osama Tezuka. He had licensed out his name, the, the famed creator of Astro Boy. By the time he reached junior high school, this had started to become an interest in electronics and particularly audio. He was into popular music, not just Japanese, but American, you know, Elvis, the Beatles, all of that kind of thing. As his interest in music and his interest in electronics kind of merged, he started building his own amplifiers, started building his own radios by the time he was in junior high school, high school, just because it kind of combined these interests of his. As I said, he grew up in Kishiwada, and he was always kind of an indifferent student. I mean, he was good, obviously. He was good at math. He was good at science. He had the electronics stuff, but he was somewhat of an indifferent student is kind of a theme of his. I, I think it was just a lack of applying himself sometimes. There were kind of two high schools in Kishiwada, and he did not have the grades or the exams. It may have been the entrance exams. But either way, he did not have what it took to get into the top school in Kishiwada. So his parents sent him to a private school in Osaka, a Christian academy, though, as Nishikado himself said, the Christian part of it was very much de-emphasized, that you didn't have to be 
Christian to go there, and they didn't receive much religious instruction, but that's how it was founded, was as a Christian private school. So he went to the big city for the first time, and this is when he was first introduced to coin-operated games, which at this time were beginning to proliferate again, uh, particularly in the rooftop garden spaces of department stores, something we've talked about in our History of the Japanese Coin-Op Industry episodes. He started playing these games uh, on the rooftops and in the gun corners and all of these coin-operated locations in the 60s. He was particularly impressed by the Casco game Mini Drive, which is an interesting driving game. Electromechanical, of course, this is way before video, where you have this plastic car and it's attached to a steering wheel. And then there's this road that's on a treadmill. The road is being cycled through on this treadmill, and you have to use your steering wheel to keep your plastic car on the road as the scenery is going by. And of course, there's wipers and contacts and all of that that detect when you get off the road. Very, very influential driving game in Japan. Probably the very first uh, significant driving game created in Japan, though, of course, driving games in the West uh, went all the way back to the 1930s. He does the high school thing, trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life, and he really wants to go into electronics. This is his passion, but his mother really wants him to be a teacher. She thinks his temperament is suited towards that, and she really tries to push him towards that. So he actually engages in a bit of subterfuge with his parents. He's a bit of a rebel, which I think is probably important to his story of becoming a video game designer and becoming someone who created something so influential. He's someone who was willing to buck trends and buck wishes and buck expectations. Not always common in Japan. We don't want to stereotype too much, but it's very much a collective culture, very much a hierarchical, revere your seniors, revere your elders kind of culture. And and here's someone that's willing to buck that. He engaged in a bit of subterfuge to get out of this. His parents made him apply to Kyoto University and Kobe University, which had two of the finest teaching programs in the country. So he took the exams, the entrance exams, because in Japan, you have to pass an entrance exam to get into college. He passed both of them with flying colors, but he told his parents that he failed them so that they would leave him alone and stop trying to make him become a teacher. So at that point, he left home, he moved to Tokyo, and spent a year going to a college prep school, taking college prep courses, so to speak, in order to prepare him to try again the next year on entrance exams. At that point, his goal was to get into Waseda University, which had a fine electronics program, was one of the finest universities in the country, the most prestigious universities in Japan. Unfortunately, this time, he failed the entrance exam for real and was not able to get in there. So he didn't end up there, but he did pass the entrance exams for another Tokyo university, Tokyo Denki, which had a focus on electronics. This was in the mid-1960s, just to kind of establish the timeline. Born 1944, discovered electromechanical games in Osaka in 1960, now going to Tokyo Dinka University, from which he would graduate in 1967. Of course, choosing electronics as a field, and with a particular interest in audio that he's been cultivating all of these years, the place that he really wanted to end up was Sony the premier electronics company in Japan, the premier audio company in Japan. Not quite having the worldwide reputation yet, but this is right before it's about to really hit big throughout the wider world as well. That's an obvious choice for someone of Nishikado's background and interests. 
the way it works in Japan, you know, there's exams everywhere. So even for employment, especially in the technical fields, you know, there is an entrance exam. I mean, this is true of all the video game companies, too. When you apply to a company, there's not just a job interview. They give you a full entrance exam that also includes interviews. So he did the Sony entrance exam, passed it with high marks, started going through the interview process, was getting through, was getting callbacks. He blew it in the final interview, and he thinks he knows why, though obviously the company never tells you these things. But one of the questions they asked was, you're applying to work for Sony, but it may be that due to staffing needs in other parts of the business that you might be assigned to one of our subsidiary companies instead. How would you feel about that? And of course, this is Japan. This is team player. This is, you go where the company needs you, you obey the orders of your superiors without question. It's the Japanese culture. So, of course, the correct answer to that is, yes, senpai. I mean, it's, yeah, of course I'll do that (laughs) if that's what you need me to do. So he said, of course, no, I really want to work for Sony. I would be very uncomfortable if I had to work for a subsidiary. He says that when he told one of his professors that, the professor basically said, you idiot! You've ruined everything. (laughs) And sure enough, he didn't get the job. He ended up working for a small audio company called Takt instead, T-A-K-T. Once again, this kind of independent rebellious streak takes hold because, of course, what he wants to do is design stuff, build stuff. That's what he's been doing since junior high school. But they don't put him in the development department. They put him in production. He does not want anything to do with that. That's not why he became an electrical engineer. So he quit after a year, which, again, is highly unusual. You know, you go where the company tells you. You do the work they tell you to. And at this point in Japanese history, you know, and you're employed for life. Just put in the time, do what you're told, lifetime employment, and everything will be great. Changing jobs, of course, is not unheard of, but it's highly unusual. And he quits after one year. He starts looking around for other work. He's kind of honed in on this other audio company that he's going to go work for instead. But at the same time, he's been meeting at a train station with an old friend of his from school. This friend is telling him about how he's been working for this company called Pacific Amusements, which we may recall from our Taito History episode was the development subsidiary of Taito. Taito was established as an import-export company. They didn't have an in-house development capability for coin-operated games, but then in the 60s, they founded Pacific in order to have that capacity. Nishikado's intrigued by this because he was interested in coin-operated games and these electromechanical games, as we talked about, like Mini Drive on those Osaka rooftops. He thought this sounded really cool and really different, but still kind of aligning with his interests. So he went down to Pacific, which was in a very primitive building, (laughs) chicken coops nearby. He was kind of like, what have I done? But still, the work intrigued him. And so he accepted the job offer, went through, passed the exam, had the interviews, got a job offer, accepted, and began working at Pacific Amusements in 1968. Now, this was a period of time when the Japanese companies were really just starting to make their mark as independent developers. Taito didn't have a capacity before, like, 1965 to make anything. 
That's around the same time that Namco and Sega, the others of the big three, also started ramping up their individual ability to make things. There were some companies like Casco with their mini drive that had been making games before that, but most of these companies were importers of American product. They weren't creating their own things, and they were just starting to get involved in this new market. And a lot of what they were doing was just rehashing designs out of the United States. You know, not making much original product, but starting to lay the groundwork for this vibrant, creative Japanese industry that we know and love today. Nishikado was thrust right in the middle of this, just like he wanted, in the production department. The exact same reason that he quit talked. Instead of making games, he was helping build games. You know, I think part of this probably was, I mean, I'm no expert on Japanese companies, uh, far from it, but what I think probably happened at both Talked and at Pacific is they were putting them on the assembly line first because they wanted them to understand the products they make before designing the products they make. It's kind of an apprenticeship kind of thing. I can certainly understand that in a lot of companies, you want to have someone who really understands the process before you have someone just coming in and willy-nilly changing things. They have to understand what we do why we do it this way, what lessons have we learned in the past, so that when you make suggestions to change things, people aren't going to go like, yeah, that's a good idea, but the reason we do that is because X. Oh, right. Okay, then I resend my suggestion. You're pretty much useless at that point until you understand how production works. So by throwing him in production, he understands, here's how I get from point A to point B with the product. Exactly, though Nishikado didn't see it that way. Nishikado saw it as, I'm an engineer, I became an engineer to design stuff, and these companies keep having me building stuff instead, which is boring. I mean, he was good with his hands, his father was a craftsman, but if he had wanted to be a craftsman, he would have followed in his father's footsteps and not gotten a darn electrical engineering degree. You know, as he put it, he was ready to quit again. But the only thing that stopped him is that his friend had recommended him for the job, and he didn't want his friend to lose face. He didn't want his friend to look bad by him coming in on his recommendation and then turning around and quitting almost immediately. So this time, unlike it talked, he toughed it out. He was rotated through a few different departments. He started in production. Then after six months, he was put in QA, essentially, testing games that were coming off the line to make sure they worked properly. Then he did a rotation as a technician basically taking the designs that have been done by the engineers and making little modifications and improvements and bug fixes on the boards. Finally, after these three rotations, he was put in development in late 1969. Again, this independent streak of his, this kind of important rebellious nature, so antithetical to the Japanese uh, generally, at least as we stereotypically perceive them. It's probably not a completely fair evaluation, but it's something that's considered part of that culture. Shines through once again, because here's a company that's at this time mostly copying other people. They have a very good trade in crane games, exactly what you think they are, the claw machines that you still see in coin-operated establishments and some other places to this day. They had a, a thriving business in that. Some of those designs, you know, they were starting to make their own. But most of their other output, they were still just copying what had been done in the West or what was being done by bigger companies like Sega. He really wanted to create something original. So he took all of these skills that he had, these electrical engineering skills, his craftsman skills, because he does inherit that from his father, and even a little bit his magic skills. He was very fascinated by magic and had been in a magic club at school, in high school. 
even his skills and interest in illusions. And he brought all of this skill set together to create a game called Sky Fighter, which was a shooting game, electromechanical, obviously, we're still in that era, where there were these model planes that flew around, and then through the use of mirrors, because they were kind of flying around inside the cabinet, and through use of mirrors, they were projected up where the player could see them against a sky-blue background that was created by a rotating drum that had a film canister that was cycling through the sky background. Then you would have to shoot down these planes, wipers and contacts registering hits. But all of the mechanics are going on in the bowels of the machine, and then through the use of mirrors, you're creating, for lack of a better word, the screen. The playfield, even though obviously it's not a screen, it's not a monitor, it's not a video game. This was a truly unique concept. I mean, there were other shooting games before it. It wasn't like there'd never been a shooting game. I mean, it's riffing on what was being done with games like Periscope and Missile and all of this uh, Sega output, but in a different context and with different pieces and with uh, different gameplay action. Part of this larger audiovisual game or novelty game revolution that was going on in Japanese arcade game development at this time. It was also a rather large game, so while it was very interesting and gained some traction upon its release in 1971, it really could only go into the largest locations. It could really only be in those, like, rooftop department store spaces. And by this time, there was starting to be a shift of coin-operated games, as we talked about in our Japanese episode, into smaller venues. You started having gun corners in supermarkets, in bowling alleys, in all of these other places that couldn't necessarily take a large installation. He created a smaller version of the game called Sky Fighter 2. You would think with uh, the number 2 at the end it was a sequel, but it wasn't actually a sequel. It was basically just the same game, except scaled down in a way that could appear in a smaller space, like a bowling alley or a supermarket or something like that. This one, because more venues could accept it, this one became a decent hit for the time. It sold about 3,000 units, according to Nishikado, which, in the context of the Japanese market in the early 1970s, was a very fine showing. So, of course, he was rewarded with another transfer, because that's how things are done around Taito, I guess. I don't have any insight, really, into how or why Taito rotated its employees around, but it's clear that the Nishikado experience, at least, whether that was the standard experience or not, I don't know, but the, the Nishikado experience was definitely being shuffled around constantly. He was put into procurement. The guy that went out and made sure they had all the bits and bobs for all the games, which is definitely not in any way why he became an electrical engineer. He once again considered quitting, but in part, I think, because he didn't want to shame his friend, in part because he had had a taste of development and there was hope for something more. For whatever reason, he did decide to keep going. His old boss did decide to throw him a bone. Probably because he could see that Nishikata was unhappy, he needed his ace in the hole because the whole company was geared around electromechanical game creation. The whole industry in Japan was geared around electromechanical game creation. But it was very clear that in the near future, the industry was going to move towards solid-state components instead of wipers and contacts and steppers and relays all connected to each other by a rat's nest of wires. We were going to have 
a printed circuit board with resistors and capacitors and transistors, all connected by very nice traces etched right into the board instead of wires. It was clear that this sea change was coming. There had already been a couple of early products like Computer Quiz, Nutting Associates Game, and those games had reached Japan. It was obvious this was coming, but nobody had this kind of expertise. Well, Nishikata was an electrical engineer, so he had the requisite understanding of electronics. He hadn't dealt in solid state because his education, like many people's at that time, was more in vacuum tubes and some of the earlier electronic components. But he had the expertise to clearly get up to speed on this stuff somewhat quickly. So his boss said, in your spare time, you do your procurement job. In your spare time, you might want to look into integrated circuits and TTL, transistor to transistor logic and start learning how this stuff works, because this is where the industry is going to go. It would be very useful for us to have somebody who understands these things on staff. So that's what he did. Procurement agent by day, transistor studier, integrated circuit studier by night. He ends up basically being the only employee within Taito at this early juncture that has any expertise with integrated circuits, TTL hardware, solid-state electronics. Which, of course, is very important because then in 1973, a little video game called Pong arrives in Japan, released by Atari at the very end of 1972, but no units make it out internationally until 1973. Pong, as we know, ignites a craze in the United States. The Japanese keep an eye on these kinds of things, and they know that there's this new craze sweeping the coin-operated space, and so they're very eager to figure out what's going on here. Taito arranges to import a cabinet of the game, and they put it out on test. It does very well on test, so they decide to get involved in the video game industry. They do so, as we talked about in our recent episode on cocktail pong games, because uh, this was tangentially related to that. They did so by contracting with an individual by the name of Marty Carlucci, who was actually doing the printed circuit boards for Atari. And they set up a little side operation through him where he was shipping them Pong circuit boards that they could then put into their own cabinets in Japan. And so even though they weren't making their own games at this point, their own video games, They still needed somebody that was knowledgeable about how these boards worked, who could fix them if something went wrong with them, who could help hook them up to the wire harness and all the controls and everything and the monitor and whatnot on the cabinet. They needed somebody who understood this stuff. So this was Nishikado's entree back into development. And indeed, once they start making their Pong clone, Nishikado is back where he wants to be in development. He starts out by helping them get their early imported games into market, as we talked about before. They also, in addition to releasing Pong as Elepong, they also imported Space Race Boards, Atari's second game, which they uh, released as Astro Chase. After helping get these early games out, he started fooling around. You know, of course, he wanted to build his own thing, and so he started experimenting with the boards and started experimenting with creating modifications to these boards. He created what was one of the first video games actually created in Japan. It's a dead heat. It's a photo finish between Nishikado's work at Taito and Hideki Sato's work at Sega. Those two companies and those two gentlemen created and put out the first homegrown video games. Near as we can tell, at least with the sources that we have available, they both came out in the same month. So, I mean, it's literally a photo finish which one's first, but it is one of the first two games, without question, original games created in Japan by the name of Soccer. 
which was just a ball and paddle variant. I mean, he started with a Pong circuit board and he just added a second paddle on each side in a soccer goal. So you had essentially an attacker and a defender, two different paddles, and you had a soccer goal and you're trying to get the ball into your opponent's goal instead of batting it back and forth and trying to make the other player miss it. Released in November 1973. He then further fiddled around and created a tennis game, Davis Cup, which was a four-player Pong. I mean, it wasn't like actually tennis. It was a Pong game with four players. Of course, as we've talked about in our Pong episode, that was kind of the next progression in Pong games that had been four-player. So uh, Nishikado created one of those. Then in early 1974, he created something that was actually truly interesting and very different from any other ball and paddle game that was created in this entire time period. Hard to be unique in this space, but he was, and that was basketball, TV basketball. The thing that's really interesting about this one is there were a few games that did a parabola-based ball and paddle instead, by which I mean instead of batting the ball back and forth, you're moving a paddle side to side or up and down and trying to hit the ball in a certain parabolic arc to achieve a result. There were volleyball games where you're hitting the ball over the net. This was a basketball game where the paddles are situated horizontally instead of vertically, but they're still moving up and down. It's just that instead of batting the ball side to side, you're moving your paddle up and down to hit the ball in a parabola and try to get it into the opponent's basket. But the thing that's interesting is he was getting sick of these abstract graphics where you just have this rectangular paddle on the screen. He wanted there to be human characters, so he created—they wouldn't have called them sprites then. It's not quite technically accurate to call them sprites, but for our intents and purposes, we're going to call them that for simplification— He created these primitive stick figure sprites of human beings. Now, they're not animated. These are still just paddles. You just have this little stick figure, and they have their arms up, and they're holding the paddle above them. But it's the first time there was a character representation on the screen, and again, it shows that Nishikado is exhibiting a spark of something innovative and different that is his alone, where he's not just following the pack, and it also shows that he is more interested in the visual representation on the screen than a lot of his fellow game creators are at this time, both things that will, of course, come to be very important when we eventually, I promise, get this episode to Space Invaders. This game's pretty interesting looking. It has the ball just in a perpetual state of bouncing from bottom to top at a parabolic arc, like you said. There are four players, two that are controlled by each side, and they are delimited by either being solid or having a slightly different shade to them. So you're just moving the players up and down, almost like, say, you have your hands in the air and you're trying to block a ball Mm -hmm. that's coming into the basket. Imagine you have your hands in the air, and then you have a little paddle or whatever is up there, or a simulation thereof, and it's supposed to use that to bounce the ball. You're trying to change that perpetual parabolic arc of bouncing ball to get into one side or the other. There is a very simple basket for both sides. It's simple with a countdown timer and a score thing. You'll get a much better understanding with the video that I will put in the show notes that will give this much better context. So I strongly suggest checking that video out. It'll help really drive all of this home and how this is really, really different from what Pong is instead of left to right, bouncy, bouncy. It really does give a sense of side on, up, down movement. Absolutely. Basketball comes out in early 1974. 
It also is the first game from the company that attracts attention in the United States. Because in 1973, as we talked about in our Taito episode, Taito did set up an American subsidiary, Taito America, that was meant to be kind of an extension of the import-export business. It wasn't just a video game or coin-operated game subsidiary. It was furthering a lot of Mike Kogan, Taito's founder's import-export business. But part of that was facilitating licensing of games, both bringing games from the U.S. to Japan and vice versa. The game is actually licensed to Midway and becomes the first Japanese video game to receive a release in the United States. Now Nishikado has really established himself in this ball and paddle genre, but of course he doesn't want to be defined by that. The industry is going to keep evolving, the industry is going to keep moving on, and our good friend Nishikado wants to keep evolving and moving on too. He continues to draw inspiration from games that came before, games from other companies, but always trying to put his own unique twist on them. So, you know, he created his soccer and his Davis Cup and his basketball games as variations on Pong, but he wasn't content to just do Pong or, as he did with Davis Cup, do Pong except four players. He did the soccer variant with the soccer goal. He's done the basketball variant with the basketball hoops. He's building on things. The next thing he builds on is the Atari driving game Grand Track 10. Now, of course, we've talked about Grand Track in the Atari context. It was the first video driving game, video game with a a driving theme to it. We won't go into its creation here because we do like tangents. That's getting a little too tangential. We're already tangenting into Nishikado's whole career. We don't need to tangent on a tangent and do Atari history for the 50 millionth time. We got an episode to cover that if you want it. (laughs) But the thing to take away from this that we do have to discuss is Grand Track was a driving game where the entire track was on the single screen. Of course, video games didn't scroll really at this point. So there's this entire complicated track on one screen, and the entire focus of the game is taking turns. I don't mean alternating between one player and two player. I mean the track is super duper twisty, and you have to make all of these hairpin turns and other really tight turns to navigate the track. So it's all about figuring out your speed and your drift and your angle, and navigating through all these twisty, turny curves within a time limit. Now, we know Nishikado liked driving games. We know that because we just said that like 15 minutes ago. We're probably more than that by now. It's not important. What is time? Where uh, he had been enamored by mini-drive when he was a teenager. The idea that video games were now replicating driving was very interesting to him. However, he was not in any way impressed by Grand Track 10. He thought it was way too finicky and difficult to be fun. He did not find navigating twisty turns all the time to be where the enjoyment of driving came from. He remembered his glory days on Mini Drive with Casco, where the road was a straight line. I mean, it it curved. There were obviously curves and bends in the road because there would be no challenge in keeping your car on a straight road. But rather than having to do these elaborate turns of 180, 80 degrees or 270 degrees or however, whatever the turns were. You're keeping your car on a road that's kind of straight, that turns gradually, that snakes a little bit here and there, but it's the pure thrill of driving. None of this, we have to stop to take this ridiculous turn every few seconds. So he was like, what if I did a driving game, video game, that was more like Mini Drive, the game that I loved in my own childhood? 
There was also another game that he was inspired by as well, which was a Taito game, an old Taito game, by the name of Super Road 7. Super Road 7 was kind of a combination of this mini-drive idea and the ideas of some of the more modern racing games like Chicago Coins Speedway, which itself was a variant of Casco's uh, Indy 500 game. These games took place on a circular track, so again, there were a lot of curves, but it included the ability to simulate collision detection by having the cars painted on individual discs. Then you projected them through use of a light shining through them. Then if these discs collided, you know, you had a crash. Super Road 7 was driving in a straight line, very similar to this idea of mini-drive, but like Indy 500 and some of these more modern driving games, there were other cars on the road that would periodically appear in front of you, and you would have to swerve your car out of the way in order to avoid hitting these cars while you're driving down this road. I can certainly see where he's coming from. He wants to see it from the perspective of, I'm behind a car, or... I'm more like I'm in the driver's seat where I have the road ahead of me and I'm reacting to that. Not how Atari Grand Track 10 is, which is God-eye view, top-down look. I can see the whole track. Almost like a boxcar racing at that point. Right. And I think he wants to feel the sense of speed, too. You know, part of the thrill of driving for those people that truly enjoy that kind of thing is, is the sense of speed. That's why there's so many sports cars. They go really, really fast. Grand Track just didn't capture that. He combined the ideas of Mini Drive and Super Road 7 to create a new driving video game called Speed Race, which was released in November 1974. It's basically Super Road 7 in video game form. You have your car on the screen, and you're accelerating, and you're driving really fast down a straight track. The track never varies. It's just a straight track, but cars keep coming at you from the top of the screen, moving down the screen, and you have to swerve out of the way to avoid hitting them. If you hit them, you crash, which brings you to a stop. Now, remember, this is a time before video games had lives. You're just driving over a period of time, and the further you get down the track, as you go down the track, you accumulate points. Then if you get enough points, you can maybe get a bonus period of time to keep driving. So it's not like a crash, quote-unquote, kills you, but it brings your car to a halt, stops you collecting points until you can get started again. And, And the idea is to get as far as you can, collect as much points as you can within a time limit. Some people have said that this is the first game with, quote unquote, scrolling. It's not actually a scrolling game, despite what it looks like. I mean, I suppose the sprites scroll, because the sprites are coming at you from the top of the screen to the bottom of the screens. You can say that the sprites move around, but it's not like it's the first game that ever had sprites moving around the screen. The background doesn't actually scroll. It's not a larger world, like a Defender or a Scramble or a game like that, whereas you keep moving, more of the playfield is revealed. But it gives the impression of scrolling through animation by having a series of still frames that are lit up in different ways. It makes it look like you have a racetrack that is moving underneath you when, in fact, it's just a clever animation trick. And then the cars descend. This is such a primitive period of time, and the limitations of the hardware are such that the whole thing can't even fit as a video game. The score and some of the other readouts are actually an LED readout on the cabinet, rather than appearing within the confines of the video game itself, because he had to use the full power of the hardware just to get this animated racetrack background and all of these cars coming towards you. 
But it was a truly remarkable paradigm shift at this very early date of late 1974 in how games were created, and it put an emphasis that had really been lacking to this point on fast-paced, adrenaline-inducing gameplay. If we're talking about video games today, you're like, well, yes, that's what video games are, right? Fast-paced, adrenaline-inducing gameplay. And they really weren't at this point. I mean, there could be something exciting about getting a good Pong rally going. It's not like video games couldn't be exciting. But Pong was batting a ball back and forth. Early combat games like Computer Space and Tank, there were these one-on-one fighting games, featured pretty slow-moving vehicles. Grand Track, a driving game, like we said, was not about pure speed. It was about navigating curves. So this is really something new in a way, this idea that video games are fast-paced, things are coming at you quickly, you have to avoid things to not lose out on points. I mean, you against the machine in a very visceral way. In a sense, uh, the reason I'm spending so much time on this is you can start to see Nishikado's path towards space invaders by focusing on this intense, high-speed action where the things on the screen are computer-controlled, or hardware-controlled in this case, because there's no microprocessor, are hardware-controlled and they're a threat to you instead of something that's just kind of there. That's a new kind of take on things, and it's very much a part of the take that ends up being the take of Space Invaders as well. By looking at the actual gameplay of Speed Race that I was able to pull up while we were recording this, I can see how one could mistake the animation of scrolling for what's going on there. Mm -hmm. If you actually pause about the middle or three quarters into the video, you get a good glimpse at what's going on. On the left and right of the track, there are little squares that are supposed to delimitate the sides, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of like if you're going down a road, you have the painted lines on the side, except it's more like the dashed line in the middle. What they seem to be doing is that they got lights underneath there that are going on and off in a certain pattern. And depending on that pattern, it gives the illusion of movement based off of how fast they turn on, when they turn off, so on and so forth. Apart from that, if you were to just cover that, you don't have the green part scrolling, really. You don't have the gray part scrolling. There's nothing to indicate that any of that is scrolling. That's just a static image or even maybe even just something that's painted on. Exactly. It's frames of animation. I mean, it is animated. Mm -hmm. They use frames of animation to create this effect, but it's not actually, the track itself is not actually moving. So this is primitive and understandable what's going on, but you can see here what's going to be something that's key coming down the line for Space Invaders. Remember, Space Invaders, we can't do much animation, but we want to make it look cool. So what are we going to do? We're going to have a static, cool background painted behind what's going on with the action. So we have this space asteroid thing or some planet or whatever we decide to do, then we're putting Space Invaders on top of that. You can see sort of the genesis of that, or at least a little bit of the idea of that here. And just the fact that there's things on the screen that are controlled by the computer that you have to avoid. That whole concept was brand new as well, and of course is something that returns in Space Invaders. The other thing that Speed Race did is it pioneered the new standard in coin-op play costs. Because Speed Race was a very complex game. I mean, it was really testing the limits of the hardware available at the time, testing them so much that, as we said, they couldn't even fit it all within the confines of the game screen. They had to do uh, separate LED readouts to do the score and stuff like that. 
because of its complexity, was also a very expensive game. At that time, the standard price for a play on a uh, Japanese coin-op game was 50 yen. But because of this complexity, Taito decided to charge 100 yen to play Speed Race. Nishikado himself thought this wasn't going to play, that there'd be a revolt amongst players. And so he actually included a dip switch in the machine that allowed you to toggle between 50 yen and 100 yen play. He needn't have worried because 100 yen play took off. The game was incredibly successful. This is one of the seminal games in the early Japanese game industry, and it cemented that new standard of 100 yen play. 100 yen being something that we may be coming back to at some point in this examination of Space Invaders. Spoiler alert. So he did that. Then he did the game Western Gun, which we won't go into super huge detail on. I mean, we have done a history of Taito before. We're not rehashing. But I'll just bring up a couple of things about that. First, once again, he's drawing inspiration from other sources. Nishikado's real talent in these early days of video games is seeing a concept that is already out there and figuring out a way to translate that into something more interesting or fun or translate it into a different medium. In the case of Grand Track and Speed Race, he's like, I want to create something that's more fun than Grand Track, but I like the idea of driving, and then he drew on his old electromechanical precedents. Now he wants to create a dueling game similar to something like Atari's Tank, which had been such a big hit and was a hit in Japan as well as in the United States. But again, he wants to mix it up a little bit. He decides that he wants to have a shootout between uh, cowboys instead of a duel between tanks, and he's inspired by the Sega electromechanical arcade game Gunfight from 1970. So again, we have this recycling of ideas, this taking ideas from someone else and tweaking them to make them, in Nishikado's mind, more interesting to come up with something entirely new in the form of Western Gun, which, to confuse things even more, is then re-engineered by Midway via Dave Nutting Associates in the United States and released as Gunfight. So there was Gunfight, the Sega game, in Japan, 1970 electromechanical, then there was Western Gun which was Nishikado basically taking Gunfight and turning it into a video game. And then there was Midway's Gunfight, which was the American version of Western Gun, which was a derivative of Gunfight. So, you know, can't make things too simple in video game history. People would get bored or something. If you're not having a pegboard with pushpins and yarn, it's not history. (laughs) That's right. So that's all we really have to say about that. And then is his next game, he decided again, because he's pulling so much from the electromechanical experience, especially in the early days. He's like, well, my game Sky Fighter was a hit in the electromechanical days back in the early 70s. Why don't I turn that into a video game? So he created a game called Interceptor, which is interesting technologically because it was one of the first, if not the very first game to have sprites of different sizes bleed into each other seamlessly to give the impression that something's getting closer and farther away from you. It's a game just like Sky Fighter where you're in a jet and you have to shoot down other jets. And as these jets move closer and further away from you, there's sprite scaling where different sizes of sprite are rendered on the screen in rapid succession to give the impression something is getting closer or moving further away. This is a pure target shooting game. It's not a game where the other planes shoot back at you. It's just target shooting. But it's interesting for the sprite thing, but it didn't do well. And it's kind of interesting. There were a whole series of shooting games at about this time that didn't do very well involving planes and whatnot. 
there would be some successful target shooting games, and we're going to get to one of those Seawolf in a moment here, but this idea of flying around and shooting at things doesn't catch on, even though that's the foundation of what becomes, you know, the scrolling shooter just a few years later. For some reason, this combination of moving and shooting when the targets are not hostile to you, because nothing shoots back at you, never pans out. Sega does one called Bomber. There's Taito's Nishikado's Interceptor. Atari does one called Sky Raider. There's a couple others. Avenger is another one by the company Electra. None of these games resonated with the public for whatever reason. They just weren't considered interesting. I mean, in a lot of them, the movement was kind of slow. That's probably part of it. I think just at this period of time, video game hardware, it just worked out better to have the player static and have the screen fill up with moving objects rather than have the player move and simultaneously also have to take out objects. It's a complete dead end, which I find fascinating. We're way into tangent land at this point, but who cares? It's what we do at They Create Worlds. But it's fascinating to me because obviously the scrolling shooter as epitomized through Scramble and Xevious and Gradius and R-Type and on and on and on at Defender, shooters that scroll become a very incredibly popular genre. But in the mid-1970s, they were a complete dead end. I think it's because they weren't exciting enough. I really think that because oftentimes the screen had to scroll kind of slowly and there was no peril for the player because nothing was firing back at you, I think that they just failed to capture the excitement. Whereas a game like Seawolf, which is still a target shooting game where nothing's shooting back at you, but because you're staying in place, it's first person and there's nothing representing you on the screen and the objects can just fly by on the screen at a faster rate, it made for a game that I guess was maybe more impactful. I mean, I'm speculating a little bit. It's a tangent, but I just find it fascinating that there were attempts to do games like Interceptor and Sky Raider and Avenger, and they just didn't work, even though... Five years later, scrolling shooters would be one of the hugely successful popular concepts in arcades. I think you really hit on it there where you said there was no fast action or any kind of sense of peril. It's equivalent to mostly just doing target shooting at a gun range or Mm -hmm. clay pigeon shooting or something like that. Yeah, it's fun and entertaining for a bit, but you've done one, you've done them all. There's no new challenge to it. Yeah. I think that's got to be a big part of it. By adding in the fact that, hey, there's some peril. They're shooting back at me. Okay, I got to dodge. I got to find cover. I got to do that twitch reaction in order to be on the constant lookout for something sneaking up behind me. On top of that, having it go faster and faster. And I think it's really that, too. It's just that adds that level of challenge as well. And you see that with video games down the line. How do they make things more challenging? Well, I did the same thing, but faster and faster. Right, exactly. Interceptor comes out in March 1976. And as I said, despite some of its technological innovations, it's, it's a flop. I mean, there's, there's no way to sugarcoat that. It doesn't do well. However, once again, the market is changing. Just as Nishikado was fortunate to get into Taito right when the market was changing, where these elaborate electromechanical games were moving towards uh, TTL games, solid-state games with integrated circuits, we're now at a tipping point where the microprocessor is just about to take over in a humongous way in the coin-operated space. Because of Taito's connections with the West— Even though Taito isn't on the leading edge of this revolution, which is happening in the U.S., 
They have ties with Midway, who is releasing games like TV Basketball and Western Gun in the West on their behalf, and Midway's contractor, later subsidiary, Dave Nutting Associates, as we've discussed, we've done nutting episodes, has converted Western Gun into Gunfight using a microprocessor. Because, of course, they have to submit this for approval, it's a licensed concept. Taito is seeing the microprocessor very early, again, for a Japanese company in this coin-op space. So Nishikado sees the microprocessor for the first time. He's actually not very impressed with Gunfight as a game. And I think this goes back to, again, something fundamental, which is why I bring this up here. Nishikado wants speed and action. Something that is often lacking in video games of this time period, not because nobody else can figure out that speed and action are exciting, of course they know that, but because hardware limitations make it very difficult to capture that and provide engaging gameplay and provide great graphics in this time period. When Nishikado created Western Gun, ah, remember when I said I wasn't going to talk about it anymore? I lied. When Nishikado created Western Gun, the screen layout is very primitive. The sprites of the characters are very squashed. They're only vaguely human-looking. You can sort of tell they're cowboys because the top of their squashed heads have a squashed little cowboy hat on them. They're very squashed, and there are rocks and stuff on the playfield, but they're very squashed and blocky as well. He's doing this using TTL hardware. There's only so much you can do with just plain hardware until the board becomes so gigantic that it's unworkable. So within these constraints, it's a graphically primitive game, but the action is very fast. And the cowboys can roam all over the screen, ducking behind things for cover, shooting at each other, shooting the cover to eliminate the cover. There's a lot going on in terms of fast action between these two players. When Dave Nutting Associates converted Western Gun into Gunfight, they had the additional power of a microprocessor, but they largely used that power to increase graphical fidelity. So the graphics are still primitive. It's a 1975 game. Even with now using a microprocessor to help drive your display, there's only so much you can do, especially since, as we've talked about before, this game did not have sprites. It did not have these individual graphical elements that you could move independently of the screen. It was entirely done through a frame buffer, which means that the entire screen is being refreshed every frame, and you don't have sprites that can move independent of that screen refresh. The graphics are still primitive, but they focused on making the cowboys more proportional. They focused on making the obstacles like cacti and stagecoaches look more recognizable. As a result, the gameplay is a little bit draggy compared to Western Gun. It's a little bit slower. Now, Gunfight was a massive hit. It's still a good game. But I'm just saying from the Nishikado perspective, there was a sacrifice made of interesting gameplay for graphical fidelity. You have these more realistic proportional cowboys, but each cowboy is limited to his side of the screen with limited mobility on that side of the screen, more like a Pong setup than a Western gun setup, and the action is just a little bit slower. And so I don't think he was very impressed by that. However, the hardware very much impressed him. Once again, he could see that this hardware was going to change the world. This was the future of video games. 
So he began to study the DNA, Dave Nutting Associates hardware, in depth, this Intel 8080-driven, frame-buffer-driven hardware, so that he could really understand how microprocessors worked, how programming microprocessors worked, how getting graphics onto a screen via a frame-buffer worked. While he's in the midst of this, DNA, of course, is continuing to release games for Midway. We have a whole episode on that. Using this new microprocessor hardware, and in 1976, they release several games, but the big one is Seawolf. This time, when Nishikado sees Seawolf, now he's impressed. Because Seawolf is more of everything he wants in a video game. It's got the greater graphical fidelity that comes from being this microprocessor-driven hardware. But because the player is not represented on the screen, because it's just targets on the screen, the action is much faster. You have rows of targets of different types, mines and ships and whatnot, and these targets move at differing speeds. The faster-moving targets are worth more points than the slower-moving targets. It's still a shooting gallery game. There's still no peril to the player, as there was in, say, Speed Race, where there is actually a peril to the player of colliding with a car. And it's still a game where you play within a time limit. You're just trying to shoot as many things, accumulate as many points as you can within a time frame. But the graphics are crisp, the animation is smooth, and the gameplay is relatively fast. You even have that scaling of the icons. You do. And if you've only played the game, we talked about this in the Seawolf episode, if you've only played the game in MAME, you actually haven't played Seawolf. Because there's also other clever tricks, which remembers another thing that Nishikado is enamored with. He loves little tricks. He was a magic guy, and he used mirrors and rotating drums and whatnot in Sky Fighter. We talked about this in Seawolf, but in addition to the graphics that are in the game, they used lights, just ordinary light bulbs, to generate explosions when you hit something. There'd be a little red explosion that popped up on the screen when you hit something. If you just play the game in MAME, you don't get that, because that wasn't programmed. DNA, as we talked about in our episode on the company, was very good in this early period of augmenting what could be done on the screen through computer hardware with practical real-world elements like molded scenery and lights to generate explosions, etc., to create a deeper experience. And I think this also resonated with Nishikado. The other thing that may have resonated with Nishikado, don't know, is that Seawolf also had a high score. Now, this has caused a little bit of confusion amongst people as well. People have said, oh, it's the first score-chasing game. It's the first game with a high score. And it's like, not exactly. Because yes, it is true that the cabinet kept track of the highest score that was made on the machine. No tables or anything, just a single score. However, the score was resettable by the player. There was a button on the cabinet meant for use by the player not hidden inside the cabinet, that when you pressed it, reset the high score. Don't know this for certain because don't have input from the designers on this. They've actually both been interviewed, both Dave Nutting, the designer, and Tom McHugh, the programmer of Seawolf, been interviewed. Uh, Dave Nutting by me, Tom McHugh by Ethan Johnson, friend of the show. But neither of them had that specific level of granular recall on the high score feature. Dave Nutting, sadly, didn't really remember anything about the creation of the game, and Tom McHugh, he didn't design anything. He Basically, Dave Nutting would tell him, do this, and then he'd do that. 
my speculation based on that is that the concept was it gave the player a way to challenge themselves. Like, oh, I got 2,000 points in this time frame. I'm going to put in another quarter, and I'm going to play again, and I'm going to see if I can beat that score. Then the next player comes along and is like, I don't care what this other guy did on the machine. I'm measuring my own, so dink, reset. You know, I think that was kind of what they were thinking people would use it for. So it's not a score-chasing game. And we don't know, because even though Nishikado is actually very good about discussing influences, he doesn't, as some Japanese developers do, he doesn't try to obscure the influences he got from other companies. So we don't know that he got the high score feature from Seawolf. But we do know, because Nishikado did say this, is that prior to making Space Invaders, he did see Seawolf, he did closely analyze Seawolf, and he was very impressed by Seawolf. So it would not surprise me in the least if part of the high score concept came from there. There's also elements of pinball in Space Invaders, so he could have very easily gotten the concept of keeping track of the score from pinball as well. But it still bears noting. He's analyzing these games off and on, and he's beginning to experiment with the microprocessors in between working on other games. He has to stop for a while because they want a driving game called Fisco 400. That's a multiplayer driving game. It's not important other than to say that it delayed him on this. By early 1977, you know, he sees these games in late 75, early 76, gets sidetracked because he has to create this other game. By early 1977, he's really ready to embrace the whole microprocessor thing in detail. By this time, of course, Breakout has become a massive hit in Japan. Now, again, we've done an episode on this. We've done an episode on the early Japanese coin-operated video game industry. So we don't need to go into a lot of detail here. But as we discussed in that episode, Breakout, it was an Atari game. It was brought over by Namco in late 76. And it was the game that for the first time generated a video game craze in Japan. There had never really been a Pong craze in Japan like there had been in the United States. There had been certain individual games in Japan that had done well, like Tank, which Namco distributed, like Speed Race, which was a big hit for Taito. But there hadn't been a craze. There hadn't been a everyone-wants-video-games-right-now kind of product before in Japan. The kind of fervor that Pong had generated for a brief period of time in the United States. Breakout took the country by storm. It Tabletop versions were released that caused coffee houses and snack bars and tea rooms to start having video games on their premises, which just opened up more and more locations, more and more young people, not, not children, but like older high school students and college students that would hang out in places like coffee houses were becoming more and more engaged with these products than they had been before. And of course, Namco could not keep up with demand, and so there was this huge influx of other companies releasing breakout clones, and it was the way that all sorts of companies got into the business for the first time, from SNK to Irem to Data East to Konami, like so many of the iconic classic Japanese video game companies got into the business through this breakout craze. Well, of course, Nishikado, as we've talked about, he's the kind of guy that doesn't just like to copy what's already out there. When he sees something he likes, or if he sees something he feels can be improved, one or the other, he wants to go the next step. He wants to go beyond. Now, this isn't a Grand Track 10 situation. He is impressed with Breakout. Breakout is a very impressive game. But he feels like using his microprocessor hardware that he's developing, and he's literally he's building all of this himself, he can create a game that is even more impressive than Breakout. So that finally, over an hour into this episode, 
is the genesis of the product that we are ostensibly talking about this entire time, Space Invaders. Because as he's analyzing Breakout, he's thinking to himself, what is it about this game that really resonates with players? We know it's popular, but why is it popular? He comes to the conclusion that what really gives players the thrill is this clearing the screen of stuff. There's something about the human brain, psychologically speaking, that just loves bringing order to chaos. Not that Breakout has much chaos because it's a solid wall, but it's the same kind of impulse that made Power Wash Simulator such an incredible hit during the pandemic. People see things out of sorts. People want to order things. It's just what we do. It's like a biological imperative. There's something very satisfying about making everything vanish in Breakout. Yes, there's fast action. Yes, there's an element of danger to it, because even though nothing's attacking you, you have to keep hitting the ball with the paddle or you lose. It's got fast action, it's got an element of danger, and you're clearing the screen of stuff. That seems to be fundamentally what's going on. What if we take that, that clear the screen thing, but let's not make it ball and paddle, let's not abstract it. Let's do something a little similar to, say, what Dave Nutting Associates did with Seawolf, where we have targets, more interesting targets, and you're shooting at them. Instead of the situation in Seawolf where it's just shoot at all of these things until there's a time limit and, you know, things keep coming, let's take the breakout conceit of clearing the screen and apply it to this. So that's where the basic idea comes from. Gun emplacement, paddle, targets, bricks, bullets, ball. Once he had that basic idea in place, the next step was figuring out what the player was going to be shooting at. Now, because of the limitations of the hardware, because remember, this is not sprite-based hardware. Just like the DNA hardware, it's a frame buffer. We're not to the point yet where hardware can do Galaxian and Galaga, where things are going to be diving at you all over the screen. We have to keep the individual elements pretty much in unison with each other. So he knows that he's going to have a huge bank of targets at the top of the screen, similar to the bricks and breakout. So the question becomes, what do we use? Again, hardware limitations mean that he doesn't necessarily have as many choices as he would like. His first idea is to do tanks, driving towards the player, which makes some sense. Why not? Well, the problem is, with the limitations of the hardware, he couldn't get them to animate in a way that he felt was acceptable. He thought they were pretty lame tanks. So he's like, then we'll do planes instead of tanks. So he does planes, and he's like, okay, these animate fine. He hasn't gone into detail, but I assume the problem with a motor vehicle like a tank is that you would have to have the tank treads look like they're rolling, and if you have 55 of these tanks with individually animated rolling tank treads, two tank treads per tank, so 110 individual animated objects or something, I assume that that was the problem, that that just slowed down the hardware too much, though it's not like he's gone into detail. So he's like, I'll do planes. Planes don't have nearly so much you have to animate. They don't have wheels. They're in the sky. Planes worked just fine. But this time he was unsatisfied by the realism of it, as realistic as you could get with this old hardware, because it kind of made sense for a whole battalion of tanks to be moving towards you in a block. I mean, in military tactics, they'd be more spread out than that. But in the player's mind, it could kind of make sense to have this wall of tanks moving towards you. But planes wouldn't move towards you in a wall like that. They'd be zooming all over the screen. It would be Galaxian. 
While Galaxian might have been fun in 1978, Galaxian was not possible on the hardware that he had in 1978. It would be up to Namco a little bit later to come up with this game where things are zooming all around the screen. So he ditched planes because he didn't think that was realistic. So finally he settled on the perfect targets, the most dangerous game. Humans? Yes, man. So he decided that there would be soldiers moving towards the player. That checked all the boxes. The animation was fine. Having a mass of humanity move towards you felt okay from a realism perspective. There's just one problem. The early video game industry was very cagey about displaying violence against human beings. If you look at most of the early games, the shooting games involved spaceships like Computer Space or tanks like Tank. Western Gun did have cowboys, but it was a duel between two players. It was a match between equals. It wasn't you just mowing things down. Target shooting games like Interceptor, like Seawolf, like Bomber, they had buildings and tanks and ships and submarines. They didn't have humans. There was something that felt a little uncomfortable about that, particularly in Japan. We've talked about the Death Race controversy, Death Race where you mowed down gremlins that were stick figures that people considered human beings, generated a huge amount of controversy in the U.S. It generated even more controversy in its way in Japan. It wasn't as big a news story in Japan because it wasn't imported in large numbers, but amongst operators in Japan, the game was very scandalous. Michael Kogan, the president of Taito, had stated in the past that he was really uncomfortable with the idea of violence against human beings in these games. While this worked from a technical perspective, Nishikado was afraid that if he went forward with this concept, it would be rejected by management because you were mowing down humans. It was at this point where he got the inspiration to go in a sci-fi route, and it was because of Star Wars. Because Star Wars just changed everything. It made space fantasy, because it's really fantasy more than sci-fi. It made space fantasy huge, not just in the United States, but also in Japan. Now, the impact in Japan was not felt yet at the time he was creating Space Invaders, because it didn't come out in Japan until 1978, and he's slaving away here in 1977. So he didn't know for certain the pop culture impact Star Wars was going to have in Japan at the time he was creating Space Invaders, but he saw the absolute mania created in the United States for it, and he thought, sci-fi is about to have a moment. Space fantasy, if you prefer, is about to have a moment. Shooting at spaceships, shooting at aliens, shooting at something like that doesn't have any of the stigma, and because they're not real-world objects, I can animate them any way I want, so the animation's going to look fine. So Star Wars inspired the shift to space, but it was a movie adaptation of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds that he had seen as a child, which depicted a Martian invasion of Earth, that inspired the actual design. One of the monster designs was ripped directly from the movie. War of the Worlds, Martians were very aquatic-looking in nature. So he took one design straight from the movie, and then he designed the other aliens as riffs on that design for some variety. So he settled on these aliens. We've got the basic premise, break out except shooting. We've got our setting and our targets, aliens. The one other thing that he needed, though, was he needed that component that made it interesting. As we saw from Interceptor or some of these other games, just shooting at things doesn't necessarily create interest. Just clearing the screen alone doesn't necessarily create interest. So the other wrinkle of Breakout that really created interest 
was that sense of danger that came from the fact that you could lose at any time, lose a life at any time, by missing the ball on the rebound on your paddle. There was that actual element of danger. Obviously, he couldn't translate that element directly. You could argue he could have, and then he would have invented Arkanoid, but that's beside the point. (laughs) He couldn't translate that element directly of having to keep something on the screen, but he knew he needed an added element of danger to replicate that adrenaline rush you got playing Breakout. He decided, in order to maintain excitement, because he found when he tested just the plane shooting that it wasn't exciting, to maintain that Breakout excitement, he would have the aliens shoot back at the player. This is like the moment that the first caveman discovered how to make fire. It's the moment that somebody figured out that you could take a round stone and make a wheel. I mean, this is like one of the singular most important moments of creation in the entire history of video games. It may sound like I'm overselling it, but I'm really not. It's not the first time that this happened. I mean, in computer space, the very first video arcade game, the flying saucers, you know, you're controlling a spaceship and the flying saucers are controlled by the computer and they shoot back at you. It's not like he's the first guy that ever came up with the idea of having a computer-controlled opponent shoot at you. There were one-on-one dueling games like Tank and Jet Fighter and Gunfight. You know, so it's it's not like it hadn't been done before, but those were very different kind of games because they were competitions. They were one-on-one competitions for points. This was different. This was zombies coming right for you, his axe is on fire, press A. Life or death struggle. Games like Computer Space and Tank were competitions. This was a life and death struggle, and this is something that had not, to this point, been conceived in video games. You against the implacable hordes of the machine who are out to get you and who want to kill you. It's the precursor to running guns, where it's you versus the horde of everything. The precursor to the single hero going forth in order to save the world at the super soldier of fortune. The precursor to you are the one, the chosen one, who can hack everything and become one with the machine and take over the Matrix and kill 16 bazillion Agent Smith. You're right. Every action video game, pretty much, comes back in some way or shape or form to this defining moment. This game is not exciting if you're just shooting at the targets. To make it exciting, I need to make the targets shoot back. I know that I'm really harping on this and and really being kind of sensational about it, but, I mean, you really can't overstate this one decision by Nishikado and its impact on the entirety of video games. It changed the entire nature of games. Before Space Invaders, the vast majority of games were time-limit games. Drive as far as you can in 90 seconds. Shoot as many targets as you can in 90 seconds. A small number of games were instead competitions based on points. Pong, make your opponent miss the ball X number of times. Tank, shoot your opponent X number of times. Then you did have Breakout, which is in some ways a precursor. Breakout is John the Baptist to Space Invaders Messiah, if you want to use a biblical reference there. 
But the vast majority of games operated on this concept of you had a pretty good idea of how much time you were going to get for your quarter or your 50 or 100 yen piece. It wasn't about survival. The challenge wasn't stay in the game as long as you can because the game was fixed in its time. This also meant that you had an idea of what you were buying with your money. 25 cents got you 90 seconds. 100 yen got you 90 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever. There was a tuned amount of time that you were almost guaranteed to get, and in some cases truly guaranteed to get, for your money. That was the predictability that sold the product. Pinball had unpredictability. Pinball, you got a certain number of balls for your money. But the idea of doing that in video games had not been thought of. So this was huge. You were going to have three lives. Invaders were going to advance down the screen. If they reach the bottom of the screen, you're done. If they shoot you before they reach the bottom of the screen, you're done. You lose a life. And then, of course, he added other elements. Because this was a new and kind of challenging paradigm, he had the bunkers, which protected you from the gunfire for a while, but were slowly whittled away by the aliens. He added, just like you had in Pinball, the idea that you could get extra lives, extra balls, extra lives for scoring a certain number of points. He put the flying saucer in so that you had a high-scoring opportunity every so often. Then, of course, whether it was inspiration from Pinball, inspiration from Seawolf, or inspiration from both, he decided that the cabinet would track the high score on the machine. No tables in the original Space Invaders. No initials next to your name. But the high score would always be visible on the machine. So those were the basic components that he created himself for Space Invaders, which he originally called Space Monsters. He created the hardware himself, he drew the graphics himself, all the aliens were his own designs, he programmed the game himself. There were only two fundamental elements to the design of the game that he did not do. One of those was the sound. We've talked about this before, but audio is a very special discipline. And even though he'd had experience building amplifiers and radios and whatnot, you often get a dedicated audio expert even in these days to do audio. And the audio was often done in analog, not digital. I mean, it was a whole different ballgame. So there was a young employee of the company named Michiyuki Kamai who did the sound. And again, Nishikado's whole thing was he wanted to create an adrenaline-pumping game. I mean, that's been his goal all along. I mean, that's what Speed Race was. That's what Western Gun was to an extent. Pump up the adrenaline. And so Nishikado came up with the idea, inspired by Jaws, of having this very simple repeating theme that just exuded intensity. You know, like the... You know, it just speeds up and speeds up as the shark's getting closer to you in that movie. He wanted to create that same effect. They came up with this idea of just these four notes that would get faster and faster. Dun, 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 dun. As they get close to the bottom of the screen. Part of the reason he was inspired to do this is it mirrored the action on the screen. And that action came about entirely by accident. Because he envisioned this block and he envisioned them descending because he was trying to find as many ways as possible to generate tension. He wanted them to descend, but he wanted them to move as a block. But again, the hardware limitations meant that he couldn't do that. He couldn't take all 55 objects and move them on one frame. He had to move them line by line. They move quickly, 
he did it as fast as possible to give as much of an illusion of seamless movement of the entire block as possible. But technically, the entire block doesn't move at once in a single frame. They have to move one line at a time because it's just too much processing power. However, as more and more objects were removed from the screen, they were able to move faster because there were fewer objects being moved. So this started out as a happy accident. Once he realizes happy accident existed, it became a feature, not a bug. And so they start moving slowly. Then as you kill more of them, they move faster until that final invader is even zipping back and forth, isn't just moving in a straight line anymore. There was a hardware limitation, but it's one that created a gameplay innovation. And then the music was created to mirror what's going on visually. And of course, this was the first backing track. It's four notes, you can barely call it a song, but it was the first continuous background track. There had been music in games before, but it was on title screens, it was on attract modes, it was in between rounds. It was just a little ditty that was done briefly. This was the first continuous pulse-pounding soundtrack. We're not doing anything like... Right. Or... No, we're not doing that. Right. We're doing a full-on, we're in the action, we're drawing you in with the music, and we're using music and sound to help drive that adrenaline rush. Exactly. So that sound was one thing that he didn't create. And of course, the other thing is the cabinet, because cabinet design is a completely different discipline. The cabinet artist was an individual by the name of uh, Kazuo Nakagawa. When he saw this concept and he saw what Nishikado had created, he came up with the visual image. I mean, it was clearly an invasion. It was, it was created like that by Nishikado. But he came up with the image of this gun battery being the last line of defense on the moon as the aliens are making their final approach towards Earth. So it was Nakagawa that came up with the concept of putting this on a kind of lunar landscape. They used the same mirroring technique that Nishikado had used in Sky Fighter and that Dave Nutting had used in some of his games, where the monitor is actually recessed in the cabinet. Then through the use of mirrors, the images are projected in front of the player with this moon graphic in the background that was hand-drawn. Of course, they also released it as a cocktail cabinet, which couldn't have that. But if you had the upright cabinet, it had that moon effect. Then, of course, to put a little color in it, they put strips of colored cellophane, which was another thing that was done at the time by games to provide color. You have various greens and yellows and reds on the screen. None of it's color graphic generated on a color CRT. It's all strips of cellophane put directly on the monitor that provide that color in that specific band of the monitor. So that was the game. It took him a long, long time to make it. It took over 10 months to create Space Invaders, which is an incredibly long period of time for a game in that time period. You could kick out a game in like three months in that time period. But Nishikado had to build the hardware from scratch and the programming tools from scratch in addition to creating the game. That was a very difficult process. In fact, it was so difficult and so frustrating that Nishikado actually took breaks during development and worked on other games. He completed two complete games, Tabletop Soccer and Super Speed Race 5, sequels to existing games, so they weren't too complicated, didn't need much dev time. But he completed two whole games during the course of working on Space Invaders because there were times where he just needed a break to go do something else and stop banging his head against the wall. But he finally completed his Space Monsters game, only to be told that he couldn't use the title. Turns out Taito had released a game many years before called Space Monster, singular, which was just a very traditional electromechanical target shooting game, gun game. 
Viper's Contacts, Toy Rifle, the works. Nishikado, according to his own recollection, says that he was not familiar with that game. I mean, it wasn't something he worked on. It's not something he remembered. He had called it Space Monsters because of the aliens, which he considered to be monstrous. He also says that it was an homage to the hit single by Pink Lady called Monster, though the timing of that seems suspect. I mean, it's what he says. It's his memory. But based on when the release of that song, it's maybe a little questionable that he drew any inspiration from it. Regardless, that's what he says. But he wanted to call it Space Monsters because of all of that. And then Taito was like, we have a game called Space Monster. We can't call your game Space Monsters. So some marketing guy at Taito came up with the final name. It's like, okay, you know, you're defending from these alien invaders, Space Invaders. There you go. Nishikado never liked the name. It wasn't his name. He far preferred Space Monsters, but he was overruled by management on that one. So finally, after all of this effort, the game is premiered to distributors on June the 16th, 1978. It is premiered alongside another game called Blue Shark, which is a traditional target shooting game where you have a spear gun little thing and you're shooting at stuff on the screen that just floats by. Nothing shoots back at you very much in the Seawolf vein. The distributors hated it. Hate, 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 hated it. It's because of this paradigm shift that we already talked about. People knew what they were getting in a video game. Video games were relatively expensive compared to pinballs and whatnot. It was a quarter per play. It was 100 yen per play. It wasn't 50 yen per play or two plays for a quarter or some of the other paradigms that were often used in pinball. You were putting a whole quarter or a whole 100 yen piece in that machine, and you did so with the expectation that you would get a certain amount of gameplay. Space Invaders, you could theoretically play forever on one quarter, and some people did, once people got good at the game. As a new player, trying to figure out what's going on and everything's intense and stuff's coming right at you, press A, press A, this ain't a cutscene, you're still playing, people were probably going to die the first time within the first few seconds. The thought was, if a player only got a few seconds of gameplay for their quarter or their 100 yen piece, they were going to feel ripped off based on the typical playing time, and they were going to walk away in disgust and never touch it again. They thought it was too hard. They thought it was too stressful. They thought that players were going to be frustrated. They thought it was going to be a complete flop. Everyone was much more excited about Blue Shark because you had all these pretty targets on the screen you could shoot, and you could have fun shooting things. The shark wasn't going to jump at you and bite your head off. You could just have a nice 90 seconds or whatever of gameplay, and everybody's playing. Everybody's happy. Just keep gaming. Space Invaders completely bucked that, and they thought it was going to be a disaster. So they received... Almost no orders for the game. It looked like, just like Interceptor two years before, Tomohiro Nishikado had created another massive video game flop. But as we will see in Space Invaders Part 2, that is absolutely not what happened. Space Invaders becomes the cultural phenomenon that defines the video game experience for an entire generation of players sets in many ways the groundwork for the entire video game industry as we know it today, and then, on top of that, stormed the home just as thoroughly as it stormed the arcades. And this great impact of Space Invaders in the marketplace will be what we examine in the back half in the second episode of our monumental look at Space Invaders, because this is a game that is too big, too important, to confined to just one episode, especially considering how much we love our tangents. <laughs> 
I think what really this episode helps to create is an appreciation for where Nishikado came from. Mm-hmm. He had trials and tribulations. He had influences. He had all of this stuff going on that led to the creation of Space Invaders. And not just that, but the vision to see, hey, this is something that's really cool with these microprocessors. Yes, what this other person is doing is interesting. Oh, wait. This guy was able to actually make something actually really interesting. Okay, there's a lot of potential there. I can see where I could take this and really be creative and create something that is new, unique, that no one's ever seen before, and my bosses will fire me in 10 minutes after I get done with it. (laughs) But hopefully we can get some test runs out there and some people can prove him right. Pretty much. Get your practice in with regular Space Invaders, because when Space Invaders Part 2 comes, you're in for a real fight. Next time on They Create World. Also, make sure that you send us whatever your memories are to feedback at theycreateworlds.com, because I must know for the 200th episode what you, the listener, want to remember. We'll read some of them in the recording. Bye-bye. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworld. You can also help by getting the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplay Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. The Jaws theme is used under fair use and no claim of ownership. It is all owned by Universal Pictures. Anyway, this is the end of the episode. This is the end, my friend. There is no thing but the end. So you have to listen to a different episode now. Bye-bye.